Hi everyone, great to have you here, really glad you're watching. Just before I get into today's message, I just want to share a clip of Liam Flint talking with a friend of ours called Brett McCracken. One of the things that we're having to wrestle with at the moment is working out how we might move forward in the current crisis when things begin to change, hopefully in July in terms of us being allowed to have uh, some more gatherings together how that might work, what it might look like, and there's some real complexity about that and some potential tensions as well uh, between people who are much more desperate to kind of push on and just start meeting normally again and others who are much more cautious. And handling all the, all the balance, the tension, the difficulties of that is, is a significant issue. Brett um, writes for the Gospel Coalition, which is a really big Christian website, and he posted an article a couple of weeks back which has had a huge impact, certainly really helped me, and Liam and I were able to sit down with him and talk some more about that. So I just want us to see this three-minute clip of Liam and Brett in conversation. Absolutely. I mean, patience is, is, a, is something we're all having to learn in this coronavirus lockdown because I think it's going on longer than any of us um, thought or hoped. Um, but yeah, for churches, especially, we need to exercise patience with so many things, with our leaders and decisions that they're making and, you know, a, a timeline that maybe some of us wish were, was going faster. Patience with one another and the convictions that we hold and the, the decisions we come to as individuals and families. I, I really do hope that when, you know, we, we start gathering and inevitably a certain portion of the church isn't going to gather because they don't feel comfortable. Um, maybe they have um, immunity issues or health issues, or in, even in my case, my wife being pregnant, she's not super comfortable like coming back to church before the baby's born um, because it's the science is unclear on how the disease affects um, pregnant women. So, so we might, even as an elder at my church, we might choose to keep watching online for a couple more weeks than we have to um, until the baby comes. So I just pray that, um, we'll honor those decisions as a church and we'll, we'll find ways to serve each other in that and, and not to make anyone feel like, you know, they're, I don't know, just weak or cowardly for making a decision. Or on the other hand, um, if you, if you're more cautious and you stay at home, don't view the people that do meet together as foolish and, you know, rash. Um, so yeah. Just give each other the benefit of the doubt, honor each other in our convictions, and uh, strive to maintain the bonds of unity. How can we, as people who come to church, best be praying for, for you guys and also the leadership teams, all of you at the sharp end as you make decisions about what's best for the church over these next weeks? I mean, for both of you, what would be really helpful? How can we best be praying for our leadership? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think just wisdom. I mean, Wisdom. I, I, I read an, a, an article recently that talked about how we need wisdom now rather than expertise. And I think that's so true. Like um, every, every expert, you know, will say what they have to say for their particular area of expertise, whether they're an economist or an epidemiologist or an education specialist. But a, a wise person takes all of those things into account and synthesizes them and makes the best decision um, out of oftentimes competing truths and competing goods and it's choosing between multiple good things and so that's the position that i think church leaders find themselves in that's the position politicians find themselves in so i would just ask that that 
Christians everywhere pray for their pastors, pray for their leaders of their church to just have wisdom, supernatural wisdom that isn't of the flesh, that isn't based on our own, um, you know, political leanings or whatever, but is based on godly wisdom. So that's, that's what we need right now. I hope you found that clip helpful. If you'd like to hear more from Brett, and I'd really encourage you in that, then check it out. That interview is on our Gateway Church podcast, which you can find on all the normal channels. And I'd really encourage you as well, in the light of what Brett was saying, to pray for the elders at this time as we work out the next steps. <clears throat> we know it's, it's, it's practically complex, and also there is real potential for us to... Uh, start kind of arguing about stuff as a congregation and uh, we need to he heed what Brett says we need to hear the word of God to remain in the in the unity of peace together and uh, and trust God that with our different kind of opinions and things and different approaches and the complexity of the situation that we don't argue and fall out about this but we're able to find a way through which really serves all of God's people at this time that is effective in our witness to the world and which brings glory to Jesus so let's uh pray and act on that. Okay, we are today carrying on in our series from the Gospel of John called True and Better, and today is a story all about water. I wonder if you've ever been thirsty, I'm sure you have, but really thirsty. Uh, I know a few times in my life when I felt kind of real profound thirst. I've done a, a few marathons over the years, not for a while now, but uh, I know when running a marathon there was a sense of overwhelming thirst, partly that was because when I did marathons, they took such an extraordinary long time for me to finish them. But getting to the end of a marathon and just drinking and drinking and drinking in a sense that you were never going to stop drinking, never going to be able to drink enough that no matter how much you drank, I was still feeling thirsty. An overwhelming sense of thirst. It might be that you've experienced something like that. It might be that your experience of thirst is also an emotional or a psychological one, that, that thirst we have as human beings for purpose and for meaning in life. Maybe a thirst for relief from some situation in life. And the story that we're going to be looking at today really uh, drills down on, on those themes, both a, a sense of physical thirst for, for actual water and, and this more uh, metaphysical, emotional, psychological thirst for meaning and purpose and relief. We're going to read from John chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, every good story begins with the scene being set. Maybe you can think of a favourite movie of yours or something where the, the, the big opening scene just, just kind of captures your attention and, and sets the whole thing up. I think back to the original Star Wars movie and you have that scrolling text across the screen which gives some of the backstory, but then it's the first 30 seconds as you see a, a vision of the galaxy, the stars, and then suddenly the camera drops and there's the Death Star, and then there's the uh, battleship that comes across. And as a seven-year-old boy watching that, I knew that nothing would ever be the same again. That opening scene was completely captivating. Now, this story, which is told here in John 4, begins with that kind of dramatic 
tension, and there's dramatic tension actually in the first sentence of the story, because it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And that actually poses a question, why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? The story, as I'm sure many of you are familiar, is that Jews, Jesus was Jewish, and the Samaritans were two peoples who were deeply hostile towards one another. They were close neighbours and they were deeply hostile. And we can see examples of that in the world around us now. Think of maybe a a profound football uh, rivalry which goes beyond simply a football rivalry. Think of in Glasgow the rivalry between Celtic and Rangers which is not just about the football teams, it's about a whole kind of sense of identity, ethnicity, culture, religion. an outsider going into Glasgow would think, hey, all these people look the same, they sound the same, they live in the same kind of places, but there can be a profound animosity uh, and sense of identity, the Celtic side of town and the Rangers side of town, or on a global geopolitical level, think about the rivalry, the tension between nations, think of the tension between Pakistan and India, and you might, as an outsider, think, well, these are similar nations in so many ways before 1947, they were actually part of one nation, and now there's this profound sense of tension between two competing powers. There's something like that in this story, something like that in the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. And the story goes back to 722 BC, when the king of Assyria uh, defeated, conquered the kingdom of Israel, and he resettled what then became known as Samaria, was known as Samaria, with alien people, non-Jewish people. And they adopted the worship of Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel, the God of the Jews, but uh, there's a a, a kind of a corrupted form of worship of God, and this culminated with them building their own temple on Mount Gerizim and considering themselves to be the true people of God. And of course, that caused huge tension with the Jewish people living in the kingdom of Judah. Uh, The Jews from Judah in 128 BC came and burnt down the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. So there was huge tension, huge bad blood between these two people groups. And so we see a tension in this story. And the question is, why did Jesus have to go that way? Was it for diary reasons? Because, as you can see from the map, it was a little bit quicker to cut through Samaria rather than to go round Samaria. But you could go round it. It would take a little bit longer. Cut off a little bit of time to travel through Samaria. Was it for diary reasons, timing reasons, that Jesus went through Samaria? Or was it because of some supernatural urging? Was the, he had to go through Samaria because actually his father was directing him to something that was going to happen in Samaria. The second significant thing we see in this opening scene is that Jesus stops at Jacob's well. Now, that immediately raises questions of ownership. Who are Jacob's heirs? Is it the Samaritan people or is it the Jewish people? Immediately, you've got that sectarian question. Is it Rangers? Is it Celtic? Is it the Jews? Is it the Samaritans? Is it India? Is it Pakistan? Who really owns this thing? Who really belongs? And uh, where this happened, Jacob's Well was near the town of Nablus on the West Bank, which to this day is disputed territory. Nablus has often been in the news a place of conflict and tension between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And so Jesus stopping at Jacob's Well, it's it's got all the tension of land and history and blood and of course of water. 
which is absolutely essential for life. And it's noon. We assume it's a hot day. It's midday. And Jesus sits down at a well. He sits down to get a drink, but this is so much more than just a place to drink. All it represents, all the tensions that are in this story. Something else which we ought to think about when we note that Jesus sat down by Jacob's well is that wells were often the places where really significant moments happened in the story of the people of God. It was at wells that often uh, the patriarchs, the men that God had chosen to, uh, to father the people of, of promise, the people of Israel, this is where they met their wives who would be the mothers of the people of promise. When Abraham was looking for his son, a wife for his son Isaac. He sent his servant off and the servant found Rebekah who became Isaac's wife at the well. Jacob met his wife Rachel at the well. Moses met his wife Zipporah at a well. Wells are places where men and women could meet and relationships start to bloom and to blossom. And here in this story, we have an encounter between a Jewish and never married man and a Samaritan and often married woman. There's huge tension. What a scene setter. It's full of drama, full of historical significance, full of tension and personal needs. And what is needed is water. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus got to the well at noon. We assume it's a hot day. Jesus is tired. He has a very basic human need. He needs some water. He needs a drink. And in this moment, in this story, we can see the humanity of Christ. We often rightly emphasize the divinity of Christ, but we also need to, to emphasize his humanity. We believe that Jesus is fully God, but also fully man. And Jesus asks for a drink. If you've ever been thirsty, Jesus knows how you feel. Now, the woman is surprised that Jesus speaks to her because Jewish men don't speak to Samaritan women. 
And there are so many barriers to this conversation even starting, let alone going anywhere, but Jesus is about to tear all those barriers down. And as we get into this conversation between Jesus and the woman, we should remember a previous one. A little bit earlier in John, we had the story of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher, someone who is at the top of the ladder in terms of his prestige and learning and all the rest. And he came to Jesus, and this woman that Jesus is talking to now is right at the bottom of the ladder. They're such contrasting figures, but they both need something that Jesus has. And we need to see that in this story, that whoever you are, whatever your story is, whether you're kind of high or whether you're low, Jesus has something that you need. Now, what is the story of this woman? We're not actually really told beyond the headline. The headline is you've had a lot of men, but we're not told much more than that. Now, we can imagine different scenarios that might be true of this woman. Maybe she was a woman who had known serial rejections from men, maybe multiple failures, multiple divorces. It might be that as a consequence, she sees men actually as dangerous, as threatening, yet just couldn't live without a man. And maybe in our contemporary context, we'd meet a woman like this and we would just recognize her as being a victim of, of domestic uh, abuse and seeing that she needs relief, she needs intervention, she needs rescue. Maybe that was her story. Or maybe she's been a victim not so much of abuse and rejection. Maybe she's been a victim of death. Maybe it's just that all the husbands she's had have succumbed to the illnesses and hardships of the era in which she lived and they've just all died and if that was the case well maybe she now sees men as weak but again she can't live without one and maybe what then she most needs is comfort and some consistency after this experience of loss or a third scenario maybe she actually is a harlot Jesus perhaps indicates this he says to her the man you now have is not your husband, perhaps indicating that the man she has is someone else's husband. So maybe she's the kind of woman who can't live without a man, but just has never been able to settle with any one man, in which case what she needs to learn is faithfulness. So maybe she's a victim, or maybe she's actually a user. Maybe she's afraid of Jesus, or perhaps she's flirting with him. We want to know, don't we? This is the kind of story that we want to know. But Jesus doesn't question her motives in this encounter, and John, as he retells the story, doesn't explore them. And that's, I think, because actually the story ultimately is not so much about the woman and her story and her history. It's actually more about Jesus. It's about what Jesus can give. And so Jesus, having asked her for a drink, quickly turns the conversation around and says to her, if you knew who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. Commentator I read on this said this rather uh, beautiful thing. Jesus' little conversation has gone in about six seconds from a death valley thirst to a Mount Everest fountain. Within just a few sentences, Jesus has completely turned the situation, the conversation around. It's gone from Jesus needing a drink of water to Jesus offering the woman something life-changing. And there's no doubt that Jesus has her attention. 
Now she knows about fetching water. That was women's work as it is still in so many parts of the world today. And that's brutally hard work, carrying water from a well back to your house. She's also a woman who knows the thirst that comes from broken relationships. And Jesus says that he can do better than the well. He can do better than all the men that she's had, for whatever reason it is that she's had them. He can give her a spring. He can give her the true and better water. Let's read her response. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. At this point in our story, the woman throws in a diversion. And again, we have to ask the question, why? Is she asking a genuine question? How do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I find eternal life? Is it that she has uh, simply some racial animosity? Jesus has turned up, he's asking some probing questions, and she, her kind of response is, well, I, I'm not going to have some Jewish man talk to me in this way. Maybe it's that she's, and this perhaps seems more likely, perhaps she's feeling uncomfortable, embarrassed, perhaps a little bit scared. She wants to get the spotlight which Jesus seems to be shining upon her far away. And so she goes from something which is slightly mocking. You don't even have a bucket and you think you're better than our father Jacob. She goes from that to you are a prophet. And it might be that she genuinely is wanting to solve this the biggest cause of the division between the Samaritans and the Jews. Where should we worship? Should it be on Mount Gerizim or should it be in Jerusalem? But it does seem more likely that what she wants is to get Jesus' attention off her. He somehow has seen into her life and seems to know some very personal details about her and she wants to get out of that uncomfortable situation. It's the kind of response that people often give, actually, when we come to discussing issues of faith. I now, I've experienced this on a number of occasions when you start to talk to somebody about faith and maybe it gets a little bit personal and suddenly there's a kind of a diversionary question that is thrown in. What about evolution? What about suffering? What about all those uh, child-abusing priests in the Catholic Church? What about the Crusades? Now, those are all important questions. They're real, genuine questions, but we shouldn't skirt the issue. And often those questions are asked actually to divert away from the personal spotlight that is being shone into someone's own heart. Let's carry on reading the story. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
Now, Jesus seems to take the woman's question at face value, but then he turns it back to the real issue. He says, he answers the question, he says, basically, you're wrong. Uh, salvation is from the Jews, not from the Samaritans. So, woman, you, you've got your theology wrong, but that's not really the important thing. The important thing is not where you worship. It's not about whether you worship in Mount Gerizim or whether you worship in Jerusalem. The important thing is who you're worshipping and how you are worshipping. What you need to do is to worship in the Spirit. Now, this is pretty much exactly the same conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the Jewish teacher previously. The context is very different, but the response that Jesus gives is similar. Look at how different these two people were. Nicodemus came at night. The woman came, well, Jesus met her at noon. Nicodemus was an Israelite. This woman is a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a respectable teacher. This appears to be a disreputable woman. Nicodemus was a teacher. She's a housewife. Nicodemus was in the city. She's in the country. He was an insider. She's definitely an outsider. Nicodemus was a professional person, lots of credentials. This woman has no credentials. She's a lay person. Nicodemus is orthodox. She is a heretic. Nicodemus took the initiative. He came to Jesus. The woman has the initiative taken with her as Jesus comes to her. One is named. We know Nicodemus. We don't know the name of this woman. She's just the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus seemed to be concerned about his reputation. That's why he went to see Jesus at night. Here, Jesus, in a sense, risks the reputation of God as he goes to this Samaritan woman. And then Nicodemus calls Jesus a teacher. And it comes to the place with this woman where she calls Jesus a prophet, even Messiah. These are two very different people, but they have one need which is relationship with God. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're high or whether you're low, whether you feel like an insider or an outsider, whether you've got lots of credentials or none, what counts is your relationship with God. And so Jesus asks a question of both Nicodemus and the woman. Will you respond to the Spirit? of God. You need to recognize the Spirit is moving. What's your response to Jesus? What's your response to His Spirit? And then something absolutely remarkable happens. Let's read some more of the story. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This is a remarkable conclusion to the story. Most of this little town in Samaria puts their trust in Jesus, and Jesus stays with them two days. But the, the, the scene is set at the beginning of the story with this kind of question that's put out there, why did Jesus have to go through Sumeria? And this seems to be the reason. It doesn't seem to be about Jesus' diary. Jesus doesn't seem to be hurrying somewhere else. He stops in this little town for two days. 
The reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria seems to be because God, his Father, was leading him there in order for this very encounter with the woman and encounter with the people in her town. There's a remarkable transformation which happens here. All those sectarian divisions are gone. I kind of picture the the scene again and, and wonder about it. Jesus and the 12 disciples, Jews, staying in a Samaritan town for two days. All those sectarian divides gone and also any social stigma that the woman knew. And we can imagine that she did in her context. Those seem to have gone as well. What has happened is that the whole town has found true and better water. Over the past few weeks, as we've been going through this series, I've been able to teach on three of my really favorite stories from the Bible. The story of the wedding at Cana, the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, and this story today of the Samaritan woman. And in these three stories, we see the humanity of Jesus. We see Jesus attending a wedding at Cana. We see him hosting what looks like a dinner party for Nicodemus when Nicodemus comes to him at night. And we see that Jesus gets thirsty like any other human being would on a hot day after a long walk. We also see in these three stories the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is the one who turns water into wine at Cana. Jesus is the one who is not just a messenger from God, as Nicodemus seems to think, but Jesus is the one who's bringing the Spirit from God. And Jesus is the one who, at the end of this story with the woman in Samaria, says, I am. The first time I am is used in this gospel. I am the very name of God, Yahweh. And the whole village then look to Jesus and say, he is the saviour of the world. In these stories, we see Jesus' humanity and we see his divinity. And we need to receive him in his humanity and in his divinity. He is the one who represents us. He's a human being just like us. And he is the one who is able to save us because he is fully God. We should respond to Jesus like this woman did, not told all the details about her. And I think actually the ambiguity of her situation helps us. In the end, we can't be certain whether she was an abused woman or whether she was a broken woman because of loss and grief or whether she was a guilty woman in the way that she'd behaved. But we know she was thirsty. And the offer for us is the same as the offer that Jesus made to her, the offer of life. That's true, whatever our story, whatever our history, whatever we're like, the offer is the same, the offer of life. Jesus said to this woman, you'll never thirst again. He said that because he promised her water that wasn't like a well you have to go and draw from, but it's like a spring, something which bubbles up and God by his spirit dwells in us a spring a stream of living water from which we can draw constantly whenever we're thirsty we can draw from the stream of living water that Jesus is able to put inside us by the power of his Holy Spirit we need to come and drink from him. He is the true 
and the better water. Let's pray. Be good just to actually pause for a moment and reflect and uh, to think about where it is. Maybe you're thirsty. Maybe you've never come to Jesus. Maybe you're like this Samaritan woman who, for the first time, you, maybe you just stumbled across this video and for the first time you're encountering Jesus and you need to know him reaching out to you and offering you life. You can respond to him. Or maybe like me, you've known a stream of living water which has been given you by the Spirit of God and known that maybe for years, but maybe you need to come and drink again, have your thirst satisfied again. Jesus said, you need never thirst if you come to me. Let's pause and reflect on where it is that we need to know the Spirit of God at work in us today. And now let's pray together. Lord, I am thirsty with a thirst only you can satisfy. Thank you for the promise of your Spirit given as a spring of life. I know I am not qualified or disqualified for this living water by who I am. I trust and believe that you have given me this water to drink. I believe you are the saviour of the world and my saviour. True and better water, I drink of you. Amen. <laughs>